Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean, and Flynn, let's start tonight with the question I think everyone is asking these days. What is the word on a potential fall release? Well, unfortunately, there there is no word. There's no there's been no credible rumors. We're in the, the last part of September now, and, and there hasn't been anything. There's there's nothing credible, uh, nothing that makes me say, hey, you know, maybe it's happening. So at this point, I just don't think we're getting any kind of fall release. We're not going to get tracks to. We're not going to get strong survive to or or uh, or anything else. So um, that's quite unfortunate. Only the second time in the last ten years that they haven't had a fall release. But hopefully, uh, hopefully in the spring, maybe when the tour gets gets going again in, in Europe or something, they'll release something to coincide with that. Well, and we did hear last year on the only the strong survive release from several credible sources quite early. In fact, I think we were one of the first, if not the first, to tweet that out. And it is weird uh, to be now in late September or heading into late September and not have anything that you've heard or anyone else seems to have heard. It's very surprising. But if this is the way it is, it's it's also going to be disappointing. And, And I don't quite understand it. But Let's at least hold out some hope because, again, you're not saying anything definitive. And uh, hopefully there'll be more information when we do our next episode. But it does seem pretty bleak at the moment. Yeah, I don't want to say it's definitive that that nothing's coming. But as I said, at this point, I mean, we knew about the Strong Survive album by the 1st of September. I think it was the the second half of August. And there's been, as I said, nothing nothing at all that I would hang my hat on. And, and, uh, you know, a five, if it's indeed this lost albums concept with five discs, I can't imagine that being kept totally secret. Got to think something would, would, would slip out. But, and so in, in that situation, I just don't think, uh, I just, I don't think it's happening. Love to be wrong. As you said, would love to eat crow on this one, but at this point I'm not, I'm not planning on that. Another year then without tracks too, if this turns out to be correct, and I don't quite understand it. Bruce talked about it in Rolling Stone. He said it would be released in the near future. That was in November of 2022. They even italicized the word near (laughs) to emphasize it. And by any standard that I'm working on, a year is the near future. If it's not coming out this year, that... Uh doesn't seem to add up, but he's also talked about only the strong survive too quite a bit. Anyway, let's not belabor this point and we'll move on to the other current events, but uh, I'm just going to keep my fingers crossed that something develops that we haven't heard yet. Right. And I do expect to get some kind of nugs release this, this December. I, I think uh, with the tour on, on hiatus now, at least, for, at least uh, 
until November. I kind of think we'll get something from them, but uh, I think that that may be it for uh, archival releases for, for 2023. All right. Well, of course, this is the first episode of the main podcast we've done since the announcement that Bruce is suffering from peptic ulcers and all the September dates have been postponed. Most importantly, we just want to say that we hope Bruce is feeling better and that he recovers quickly. And the show we saw night three at MetLife, which we raved about in our wrap-up show, uh, little did we know what he's been dealing with. And clearly he's been in some pain. It makes it even more stunning what happened that night. Yeah, it's funny. We were thinking this year that Bruce was no longer superhuman because he wasn't changing the set list and he was doing this and doing that. But then it turns out he really was at least the last um, last couple of weeks in Foxborough and, and the Meadowlands where he, he apparently was marching through doing it, doing the shows with this with this ulcer and and the uncomfortable and the pain I'm sure he had. And and he yeah, and he managed to put on a I mean, we didn't see Foxborough the first uh, Meadowlands show, but those second two Meadowlands, yeah, they were uh, they were pretty special. And that's as legendary as we're going to get right now. Yeah, that was pretty remarkable to think that at 74 years old, well, a week or two short at that point, but 74 years old now by the time you're listening to this and the heat and knowing that he was ill, it's just crazy. The, the man is really one of a kind. So that's uh, true. We, we but, really but, enjoyed that. Yeah, but the weather on uh, on the Friday night was just was perfect for the show. It was it was a little bit warmer on Sunday, but that weather on Friday, man, that was that was legendary right there. <laughs> perfect night for it the was, show. It was beautiful, and hopefully everything's going to go smoothly in his recovery, and the tour will resume as scheduled now, which I think is on November sixth. We'll come back to this as there's more news, and again, we just hope he's feeling better. With that, should we return to the Rising Tour? Absolutely. Let's get back to it. So when we last left off, we were in Buffalo, and then they took a very short break, only a week, and the tour reopened in Europe. European arenas, which of course has been unusual in the reunion era, and they did basically a week of shows to help promote the following summer's stadium shows that were going to be upcoming. Yeah, they did a series of seven shows, France, Spain, Italy, Germany, Netherlands, uh, Sweden, and, uh, and England. And these, a lot of people consider these shows to be among the highlights of that tour. It seemed like the European audiences combined with the, with the small arenas that, as you said, they're not used to playing over there, just made for a very special vibe. And I know there are some people who claim that the that that London show at the end of the uh, of the Europe of this European leg, if you want to call it a leg, uh, is amongst the the best that that he's done in, in in the reunion era. It certainly sounds at listening to the tape of that show now, of course, in our never ending theme about what could be archive releases from the Rising Tour if they could access the shows. I, I think we agree that London would be right up there. Oh, absolutely. But uh, until they can figure that one out, which I'm sure they never will at this point, uh, we got to say Crystal Cat did an amazing job covering covering that that run of shows out of the seven European shows. Uh, Crystal Cat released five of them and Sweden and, and England and London or actually Stockholm and London, I should say. Actually, two of the best recordings, maybe audience recordings ever. They're just they're just right there in your ear and they're right there in your face and just 
just amazing job and they'll definitely suffice until uh well it'll suffice uh it'll have to suffice because they won't solve that other issue well the european leg opened in paris the show there was pretty much continuing what he'd been doing in the states an interesting pairing with further on up the road early in the show into darkness and then they wound up in Barcelona, and we want to focus on this because, of course, the Barcelona show was both broadcast and later released as live in Barcelona, and it really also was a very top-notch show. Oh, yeah, that that arena just hopping. I was there at the beginning of the reunion tour, and that was before things really took off for for Bruce's relationship with, with the European fans, and at least in the reunion era, as as we say. And I can only imagine how much more energy was in that building when uh, that night. I mean, just looking at the at the video, obviously, I, I feel like all I see are bouncing heads on, on the floor. Yeah. And Bruce basically made it a 90-minute set of, well, the first set by moving Dancing in the Dark into after Mary's Place to, to get that on the, on the broadcast. And then I, one of my highlights from the show is the spirit in the night that uh, – uh, the crowd had to, had to help him with the lyrics. I, I thought he had a prompter up there, but he uh, he had he needed some help from from the Spaniards. Yeah, very very nice solo piano version of Spirit of the Night, followed by solo piano incident. This is a really good show to watch. Now, speaking of the audio, because we come back to the problems. Of course, this is one of only two full shows from the Rising Tour that have been released, and. Two, two full say, shows from the wait a minute, how two yeah, full shows from the rising tour? Just one in Helsinki. One? Helsinki. Oh uh, yeah. I kind of forget about yeah. that one. Okay. Go so on. there's one that was a DVD and one that was a Nugs release, of course. And okay, I always forget it's about fair, that. It's fairly safe to say that the audio on the Barcelona release, unfortunately, has been highly criticized, would you say? Uh well, including by uh by me, I, I was expecting an audio quality similar to live in New York City, where you can hear every little instrument and every little nuance. But no, this one actually kind of sounds like an audience recording uh, to my ears. I actually feel like all the crystal cats from this leg sound better. But it, I guess it does capture the the energy in, in the building that was just that was over the top. But but still, I was hoping for something uh, you know more conducive to repeat listening. And as far as the shows that are released, Helsinki, as we know, is a pretty vanilla type of show. This really is a standout show. As we're talking about, the theme of this week was that the band was really on fire, I think because Bruce knew that this was going out first on TV and then would be released. This was a big performance. And I think most of these videos are on Bruce's YouTube channel. And when you watch Born in the USA and Land of Hope and Dreams, it, it, exactly what Flynn is talking about, the, the crowd response is just so big. And it, it really, it makes an impact. The, the band was was great at this point. And, and I think, except for the first couple of shows of the tour, as we were talking about in the last episode, that really was something that was a nightly event, both in 2002 and 2003. We did a roundtable with E Street Radio about, what, 12 years ago, 13 years ago now, where we talked about the reunion tour. And I think you and I both ranked it as the best one of the reunion era at that point. But there are a lot of people who think that this stretch of the rising tour just just blows the reunion tour out of the water. And 
you know, there is an argument here. I will say that, especially when he when he got this kind of show. And one thing I do want to point out is that with the placement of Dancing in the Dark after Mary's place, I kind of opened that slot in the encores and you get a hell of a performance of Night. Uh, Night Ramrod Born to Run yeah. makes, a, makes for a really good uh, first encore. Yeah, obviously, if you've never seen Live in Barcelona, we highly recommend it. And talking about it actually makes me want to go back and look at it because I don't think I've seen it. I certainly haven't seen it straight through in a very long time. Occasionally, I'll pull up the YouTube videos. and Which are the shows, which are the two shows that aren't out by Crystal Cat? Because I know I've heard, I've heard uh, the show from Stockholm. Of course, I've heard the show from London. Have mm-hmm. we heard the show from Bologna? Not from Crystal Cat. There is a recording okay. of it. It's nowhere near Crystal Cat quality, but it's out there and it's kind of a fun little stand on it, um, which was a tour debut as uh, as Roy had a little uh, boogie woogie piano solo to, to lead into the song. And I remember that that being a pretty fun one when I was putting my compilation from this tour together. I love that boogie woogie. <laughs> Bologna actually had the, a cool combination of You Can Look and No Surrender between Sunny Day and, and Worlds Apart. Definitely a little bit more interesting than uh, than Promised Land, at least to me at that point. I do recall hearing the show from Rotterdam. Now, that had a really cool version of The River. Yeah, it was a fair, it was a solo guitar version, actually, a solo acoustic. And I don't think it's ever been played uh, played that way since, but... I want to, one thing I do want to point out about this run of shows is that he was doing many of these shows. He was doing two solo songs uh, between Miracle and Into the Fire. And at this Rotterdam show, he had done For You on piano before doing The River on guitar. But going back to Berlin, the previous show, he did Promise, The Promise, Into Incident. And then looking ahead, we, in Stockholm, you had Incident and For You. And then in London, you had The River and Incident. So it was a, a pretty interesting uh pretty interesting run where he was really exploring that kind of a obviously foreshadowing of the devils and dust tour yeah that's actually a very good point i was thinking about that as you were saying all of that the other notable performance from these shows i always remember at the stockholm show there's that he drops in a version of gloria between badlands and she's the one and it cracks me up because for like half the version of gloria the crowd is still doing the chant from <laughs> Badlands. I don't even know if they realize that Gloria is being played. It always cracks <laughs> me up when I listen to that. Yeah, but that was such a moment. I remember listening to it and getting, and getting goosebumps the first few times. It's so much fun, and it's just one of those holy shit Bruce moments that that we've come to that we've come to love, and what makes this show so special. And I need to issue a little correction on myself that. Bruce did the river on solo guitar, also in London. This time, adding adding Susie for some for some violin. And I haven't heard that one in a while, but I assume once Susie was added back in, that it was similar to the version played in '96 on the Joe tour. I, I haven't listened to those the versions back to back, but I, I assume it was very similar. After London, they departed Europe and they returned back to the United States for more arena shows. First, Bruce did a guest appearance at the Trade Winds for that year's Light of Day show. And then I think he flew overnight because that was on November the 2nd. And they had a show in Dallas on November the 3rd. Maybe he flew out early the next morning. But whenever he made it to Dallas, they played a show there. They were continuing what they had been doing for that period of time. The one notable thing in this show is that they tour premiered I Fought the Law and Don Henley guessed it on stage with the band. 
Yeah, so let's make sure we get we get that in there for our, our friend Kirk, who was who was at the show, and so that was the lone version of "I Fought the Wall." Yes, <laughs> that's <laughs> between nineteen eighty between nineteen eighty four and, and two thousand eight. But so uh, so he did it with Don Henley, a uh, pretty pretty standard version, and and uh, then they ended the show with "Working," which was always a fun one. Actually, I thought it was more fun this tour than it was on the reunion tour. But uh, anyway, the second stop was in Houston, just the next night. And that included a pretty cool version of Atlantic City as well as Bus Stop and, and a solo piano version of, of For You. And then, unfortunately, uh, Clarence had a little uh, emergency with his eye. He had a detached retina. So the shows in Austin, uh, Columbus, and Indianapolis all had to be postponed. Now, the interesting thing about the Austin postponement is that they went ahead and scheduled it for March 2nd of 2003. And that was the first indicator that there was definitely going to be more U.S. shows uh, on, in the spring of, of 2003. So that was that was kind of a big deal. Following that set of postponements, the tour resumed on November 12th in Cincinnati. And to discuss that show, we're going to bring in a very close friend of the show, Dr. Jason Berkeley, who was in attendance that night and also impacted the set list. Jason, I know this is a big deal for you. Welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. I appreciate this. I've been waiting this for this a long time. Well, this is a great opportunity to have you on considering what you did in the encores or how you impacted the show. But I want to first start off with the opener, American Skin. I think that was the first time he'd ever opened a show with it. How did that go over in the arena? Um, Well, again, you know, it's been now 21 years, which is hard to fathom right now. But um, it it was one of those moments where I don't think a lot of the people in, in in the audience really knew the significance of the song. And uh, I also vividly remember there were some people that had turned their back uh, to Bruce while he was playing. And that didn't make sense. And of course, after the show, I called Hal and he clear clarified it for me um, that there were just some people that were just put off by him commenting on that in a song. Um, but it was very quiet. Uh, obviously, it was the, the, the show opener, so it was one of those situations where I don't think people were expecting it as well. I see here on Bruce Base, Bruce did make a statement prior to going into the song where he cited that they had been contacted by several local organizations about trying to combat segregation, economic apartheid, and the racism that was going on in Cincinnati. I guess there was also unrest following a police-involved shooting the year before, and then the officer was acquitted. And he he spoke very eloquently about it before launching into the song. But as we know from the Garden, there are certain people who don't want to hear that message. Yeah, correct. It was. I think that same feeling and uh, notion was carried over to Cincinnati. And in fact, uh, I remember we were outside of the arena listening for the sound check, and I didn't hear him even sound check the song. So I was kind of taken a bit back when he started playing it. I wasn't expecting it. And it was one of those, as we've seen over the last few decades, uh, those poignant Bruce moments where it just kind of hits you when you're not expecting it. After American Skin, the show proceeded pretty normally for the period The encores opened with that new guitar version of Dancing the Dark that we discussed in the last episode, and then certain things happened. So why don't you tell us what happened after dancing? Okay, so I have to back up a little bit. Uh, Driving down with my friend John from Detroit, because I'd flown into Detroit, and we would usually do the circuit of, of shows around the Detroit area, whether it was Chicago, Cincinnati, Cleveland, et cetera. 
we were driving down there. I kept saying, I got to hear I'm a rocker. And the way that, that the shows were with the GA back then, it was literally first come first serve. You get the number on your hand, you have the random check-ins at few, every few hours. And we got number 34 and 35. So I knew I was going to be up against the rail. And this was a very, I mean, for me, I had never rarely ever been that close. I've been more, you know, further back or side, side stage in the past. So we get there and we get to our hotel. And I said to my friend, I said, look, I think this is going to be close enough if we get there that me, of course, being almost six, seven, I've got to make a sign. I've got to make some kind of sign to request I'm a rocker. And he said, we went to, we went to the Walgreens around the corner. He said, whatever you do, because I was about to buy this on a white poster board. He said, no, you got to get it fluorescent green and buy more than one in case you screw it up because I have horrible handwriting. Anyway, we get back to the hotel and I wrote up the sign in big, bold letters. I came 2000 miles to beg, underline the word beg for I'm a rocker. So we, we, we go to the show, I have a sign in tow, and the key was, I felt, I didn't want to be disrespectful to Bruce during the show in the main set. I didn't want to hold up the sign the whole time, I didn't want to uh, put it in his face, I thought it would be more of an annoyance, because we were literally 12 inches from Clarence the whole show. So it was Clarence and then us. <laughs> so... I felt the right moment would have been the encore towards the end of dancing in the dark. I held up the sign. Bruce didn't see it. I was about to give up. My friend, my friend said, John, my friend, John said, look, we came this far. Do not quit. (laughs) So I held the sign back up towards the end of the song. And that's when Bruce looked over at me and came walking over. And my heart literally started to jump out of my chest. I broke into a cold sweat. I said, what am I going to do? Is he going to call me up? I had no idea what was going to happen. Takes the sign for me. And again, we have to remember, nobody else had brought signs at this point. You were the first and we hold you responsible for that. Yeah, it's It's your your fault. fault. I I am (laughs) responsible for the sign, for the sign era. And what's even more interesting is in 1999 at the Meadowlands, there were people who brought signs to Feroza lead. And he said, put those fucking signs down. I'm not a <laughs> yeah, box. That was a little different. They were all Xerox. There wasn't any. Yeah, it was a coordinated thing. It was yes. really annoying. I have to say, I agree with you. I agree with you. But, uh, he takes the sign and he starts to read it and says, I came 2000 miles. He goes to, to beg for, I'm a rocker. And he starts playing it off. Like, I don't know. We haven't played that. Meanwhile, I think they had played it in Denver. I think a week or two prior. Uh, he said, I don't know. He's let the begging commence and I'm going nuts. I I don't know what to think. I'm losing my mind. He's talking to me. And finally he says, okay. And then he, they start, they work out the song a little bit. He said, you know, Max starts it. It's an A, uh, with an organ solo. And he says, okay. And he goes one, two, three and counts into it. The band starts going and he says, coming at you kid. And I lost it. That was it for me. (laughs) (laughs) I just totally lost my mind. And if you watch the video on on, on uh, YouTube, you can see it. Uh, you'll see that uh, I'm there jumping around like a maniac towards the end of the video. And uh, Clarence even held up a thumbs up too, which was even great, uh, great moment after uh, the request was over with. 
So well, wasn't one of the lines he said to you was let the begging commence. Let the begging commence. Yes. Yes. And I was begging. I was, I almost got down on my knees in front of the railing. I still would have been able to see over the railing, but uh, it was, yeah, we were all hamming it up. And afterwards it was one of those things. Everybody was high-fiving, hugging. It was a really a wonderful, wonderful, spontaneous moment. Well, that's amazing. That's we want. What that's what we wanted to hear about that moment. So we appreciate you telling us about it. And from there, the rest of the encores proceeded pretty normally. The show ended with uh, "City of Ruins," "Born in the USA," "Land of Hope and Dreams," and "Ramrod." Overall, how did that show rank for you? You saw quite a number of shows on that tour. I, I did. Uh, this one was special. It was not only special because just kind of a rough time in my life. And getting down there to see Bruce made it uh, extra special for me. Uh, but I was seeing a show with one of my friends who I've been seeing shows with since the you know mid '80s, and so um, th- those those shows are always special when you can look back and see those memories that are made. Uh, and and I just everything about it was a, was a great great experience. And I must add, I know that I affected everyone else's shows after that with the signs, but. When he came back to Dodger Stadium later that tour, which I knew you guys are going to get to, the stadium part, yeah. I made up another sign that said, this time I came 26 miles to beg for I'm a rocker. He took the sign. He said, wait, we played this for your ass last time, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> so he knew you. He knew you. He, said, yeah. he remembered, well, yes. That's and, funny. And definitely stands out. There's no question about that. <laughs> and in fact, I think if I remember Hal said that that kind of saved that part of the show, I'll let you get to that oh, part. We're, yeah, we're going to get to that show in the next episode because that was yeah. an amazing leg. That's yeah. stadium leg of the Rising Tour. But unfortunately, the Dodger Stadium show was not a high point. No, but, but that'll you know, be like, in the next episode. The key, again, the key to the whole sign thing, I always looked at it was wait till Bruce and the right moment. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. people uh, resorted to waving signs the whole time. In fact, in front of us, there was a guy one time that had a sign that said, Susie's making me woozy in front of me and Hal. Almost the That's whole the greatest sign of all time. Come on now. To, I don't even know what it means, but we had to get, tell the guy finally, get rid of your sign enough. But uh, yes. I apologize to everybody who was bothered by signs, but it was a special moment for me. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for joining us. We're glad that you finally made your first appearance. It won't be the last. Thank you. And there'll be a lot more to talk about in the future. All right. Appreciate it, guys. Love the podcast and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thanks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. 
Once again, that was our good buddy, Jason Berkeley, and we thank him for reporting in on the show in Cincinnati. The tour moved on from there. They were in Lexington, which actually had a very significant tour debut because Streets of Fire was played at, for the first time in over two decades. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty cool. Now, the cool thing about that about that recording and the audience recording is not very good, but there is a really cool moment when the there's a person near the taper who realizes what it is that it's streets of fire and that they haven't played it. And obviously a favorite of this particular fan and you hear her go, yes, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's like, you really are at the show. So I, I always thought that was a very cool moment. According to Bruce Bass, the actual last performance was January 1st, 1979. Of course, the final night of the darkness tour. Incredible how he was pulling out songs after 20 years at that point. Of course, most of them are expended, so that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> But I was, I'm just glad we were there when we saw them. And, and we didn't get to see Streets of Fire until the following summer. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. But man, was I excited when that was played. <laughs> yeah, it did, it did sound pretty cool. I don't think I saw it that summer, but uh saw it when, when I saw the Darkness album. But anyway, that's moving ahead a few years. Um, the next show was in Greensboro, North Carolina. And actually, I was there. I uh, actually, I brought my parents and my uncle. And we were... Um, a little bit late. We missed the first first few songs. I think we got in during the fuse, but it included a really cool version of Cadillac Ranch, and and I really loved that version of Incident on Fifty Seventh Street. And very solid show. Not not one you would look to be in a excellent, but uh, it was solid. I was like, damn, that's a, that, this was a really good show. So and uh, so I'm glad my my parents and uncle got to enjoy that one. And from there, the tour moved on to Birmingham. Pretty standard set list. There was one tour premiere that was Darlington County, but I think the most notable thing from this show is the guest appearance of Emmy Lou Harris on My Hometown. Yeah, and it was a, an acoustic performance, so it was pretty low key. And I got to say, a little disappointing that that's the song they chose when uh, the next summer they did an amazing, amazing version of Across the Border at, at Giant Stadium. But uh, but still, I guess it was uh, it was beautiful in its simplicity. I don't think I've ever heard that. Is that available? Yes, yes, it is. It's uh, I, it was, it's all my compilation. <laughs> oh, it's been from, a long from time. Sorry, since I listened to your compilation. Oh, it's okay. Oh, I, that, that hurts, but okay. <laughs> then they went it. to Orlando, and the Florida run. Bruce obviously caught some kind of inspiration or something. Three tour premieres in Orlando, big ones: Sane in the City, Human Touch which always sounds great when played with the band and the Detroit medley. Yeah. This looks to be one of the, one of the better set lists of, of this leg. And not only do you have those three, but then you also have candy's room, a solo piano version of the promise and, uh, and Darlington County again, I made a, a good two for with Saint in the city. And, and then they went on to Miami and, and then they had four more tour debuts out in the street. So young and in love, if I should fall behind with Dion and for me, possibly the best version of Because the Night that I have ever heard, because Bono and Dave Stewart, Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics, joined, joined Bruce on stage for it. And there's a moment in this performance when Bono, he, he takes over and it sounds like he's singing a different, some different song. It, 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 he was, it was, I guess it was the melody, but it wasn't the lyrics. And it was just a holy shit moment for me. Again, goosebumps while listening in my car. 
that's a great, great version of the song. And Bono is prone to doing that. You know, he does those little snippets and he, he, it could have been from any song. I mean, he's constantly using other people's lyrics. He makes up his own lyrics. Who knows exactly what was going through his mind there, but he really added to that version of the song. Oh man, that, that's just that's just incredible. And then uh, and then big pussy. Dave Stewart Vincent. is also big time on that one. Yeah, his his guitar work uh, is pretty is pretty fun. It's it's a lot different than what you usually hear from from a Springsteen stage. So it's that adds a, a little uh, uniqueness to it as well. And as I was saying, big pussy Vincent Pastor himself came out and introduced the band uh, for the encores where they did the tour debut of so so young and in love. And then you had Dion coming out and doing the doo-wop version of If I Should Fall Behind. So it was uh, it was a, a night of, of guests, and it made for a really special show. Yeah, that version of If I Should Fall Behind is outstanding. Yes, it was. But little little uh, odd uh, sequencing going from Glory Days to, to Fall Behind back to Born to Run. So a uh, little, little pacing issue. You thought he would have done it earlier in the, in the encore or, or after Born to Run before City of Ruins, but that's where he did it, and, it's, well, and it we'll, still worked. <laughs> we'll cut him a break because that was a really good show. Then they moved on to Tampa. Twist and Chat was a tour premiere there. Atlanta followed Tampa. There was another tour premiere, Where the Bands Are. And then they came to Pittsburgh, and yet again, there was another guest appearance. This one with the expected local boy, Joe Groshecki, joined them on stage, and they did Code of Silence, uh, they did Glory Days with Joe and Johnny Grishecki, and also Joe was out there for Born to Run. Okay, and then they there was a solo version of uh, of Youngstown, and that was a tour debut as well. Yeah, so. that was also really nice. Yes, yes. He, he did that in the typical solo slot between Counting on a Miracle and, and Into the Fire. It was interesting how he used those slots on the Rising Tour. And, and if you look at even bringing it to 2023 for a moment in terms of the endurance and giving the band the rest. We know he's done a couple of solo acoustic songs from all of the tour. Well, obviously I'll see you in my dreams was dropped at the last show, but it seems like he could incorporate more of this into the current tour, give himself a little bit of rest, obviously give the band the rest. And, and I think it would work really well, especially if those slots rotated and it was sort of a surprise every night. What do you think? Well, you're not going to get any disagreement from me here. That's that's for sure. I, I guess he did some uh, some solo stuff back on the um, Wrecking Ball tour in '13, and some of the vocals did sound a little bit labored. So maybe uh, he's worried that that would happen. I remember the version of Real World was a little bit, a little bit iffy there. Um, but but yeah, any anything for variety in, in 2023 is and 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 I'm there. After Pittsburgh, the tour rolled on. They went to Toronto, which had a pretty standard set list. Neither of us were there, but you were present for the next two shows. Yes, December 8th in Charlotte and December 9th in Columbia, South Carolina. And yeah, Charlotte was a very solid show. You had you had Where the Bands Are. You got a good version of Backstreet's in there. But it was Columbia uh, the next night, which really, that really delivered. I remember uh, we were thinking that it was one of the best shows of the tour. And I was talking with people who had seen a lot of shows. It wasn't like they had seen two or three. But you had the tour debut of My Love Will Not Let You Down, with which worked perfectly after No Surrender. And then you had the growing up in the unusual spot between Pompous Land and Worlds Apart. 
and the tour debut of, of this hard land, plus the Detroit medley and the encores and all of this. I mean, it was just it was just phenomenal. And one more little detail is that it was the first show that he brought back the harmonica on She's the One since like 75. And that became uh, it was such a, a cool moment when, when he did that that first time. And then he, he, he continued doing it. And unfortunately, now it's 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 pretty much rote. But that first night he did it, that that had us all on all had all of us uh, tingling. It was smoking hot. Now, I said you saw two shows in a row, really, you because you then met up with me and you also attended the taping of Late Night with Conan O'Brien. And then we also together saw the Albany show. So you basically saw that whole week. <laughs> yeah, I took a week off from work and just went from uh, down to South Carolina all the way up to Albany, New York. So, yeah, it, it, it was quite the week. Put a lot of miles on my car that week, but, right, but it was well, worth talk- it. Let's talk about Conan, let's because do, let's this do. really was a great night. Uh, a bit of a surprise that it turned out as big as it did. To set the stage, we had actually, a lot of people, not just you and I, but a lot of people in the community had been tipped off that Bruce was going to be doing this, and we all called in to the Conan ticket line or whatever the process was and asked for tickets for that specific night, which is an important fact because... The show is being taped and we were very fortunate because we were placed in the (laughs) front row. And in fact, we became television stars that night. But Bruce (laughs) had no idea who was in the audience. And when it came time for his performance, he did sort of like a mini Christmas show like he'd been doing at Convention Hall, but here at 30 Rock. And he opened well he the first song i shouldn't say he opened it wasn't a real concert but the first song was kitty's back and about half the way through kitty's back what happened he he looks up and you can see it on his face that oh my god these are my people <laughs> that's and, exactly it and from there i think it it actually probably i would like to think that it comforted him comforted him in in some way to know that Doing Kitty's Back Here, a very obscure song. Uh, it's from the second album. It's never played on the radio. And he's doing it on, on on late night television, on network late night television. But he knows that his people are there and they're loving it. Just like, as you said, we did at, uh, at the Asbury holiday shows. You can actually see it if you watch this back. And it's obviously on the Internet. There's a moment where he sort of like lifts his head because there's energy coming from the crowd that he clearly is not expecting because it's Kitty's back. The average late night with Conan O'Brien crowd wouldn't have really known Kitty's back. And it was it was a really funny and cool moment. And for my money, I believe that's the best version of Kitty's back the band has played (laughs) since they reunited. Very likely, and I think we should mention that they had the the Max Weinberg Seven is basically the horn section from the Tunnel of Love tour. Uh, Mark Pender and Richie Labamba Rosenberg are are there, and and I think that's one of the reasons he chose Katie's back, and because he had the horns, he let them stretch out a little bit, and and and, and it was fun. I I think our audience knows I'm not a big fan of the song Katie's Back, but this one was uh, particularly uh, even I really really liked this. And Kitty's Back was followed by Merry Christmas, Baby. Beautiful well, it wasn't, wasn't version. It really, wasn't really followed. I think they took yeah, a break right. and then I know they came you back. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. But yes, they took a break. They came back. They did Merry Christmas, Baby. And this is where some of us, especially 
me, Claudine, our friend Gail, got some real major FaceTime <laughs> on TV because Bruce once realizing who was in the crowd, and, and it was a lot of people that he recognized. Stan was there, and the song, well, they had a lot of fun with it. He gave gifts to Conan O'Brien. He gave Max a blow-up doll with a joke <laughs> that I actually don't think would fly in 2023. For those lonely nights on the road. And then he came out and he started throwing us candy canes and he came all the way up into the audience standing right next to us. And yeah. you can view this all on TV. It was, it was a really great moment and a lot a, of fun. It was amazing. And again, it, it, it uh, brought some of the Asbury uh, holiday shows to, to Conan O'Brien on network television. So people who weren't able to see those shows got a little bit of a nice taste with, uh, with this one. It was really, really good. And then the next day we went up to Albany, snowy Albany, and we saw the show there. And I had not seen a show at that point for several months. And Albany was a very high quality show. I I remember it felt different than the shows I had seen earlier. When was the last show you had seen? I'm pretty sure. Or LA? It was, uh, I believe it was San Jose. Okay. All right, so back, yeah, San Jose was after back in LA. August. Back in yes. August, then. Yeah, I did not see a show from August to, I believe, December, because he was in the Midwest, and that was just the way it worked out. So uh, I, I felt that this show had a different type of energy in a way, even though, of course, it had the major foundations of the rising set, especially with my love early in the show. And if I recall properly, was that the night? Did he respond? Yeah. To something that occurred during Empty Sky. Right. Uh, I'm looking yes. at the set list. Darkness was the response yes. to cheering during Empty Sky. Yeah, they were reacting to the to the line, an eye for an eye in, in Empty Sky. And we, we need to put some other context in here. And, and that's that we were, uh, the United States was was basically on marching towards war with, with Iraq. And there was, a, again, a quite, quite a cheer to, for that one line. And then after you're missing... Bruce came out and said, all right, revenge will get you nowhere. And he launched into a ferocious version of darkness. And so that, that was his, his statement about that. And a lot of, a lot of different, different uh, perspectives on what was happening in the United States in terms of that, that run up to the war. Yeah, it was very intense. And later in the show, he played this hard land before into the fire. I was really excited to see this hard land it was a high quality set of encores, and then I and I think it was completely off the cuff, right yeah, after it was. Santa Claus. They did a version of uh, Chuck Berry's "Around and Around," which was, of course, a tour premiere, and I believe the only time <laughs> they played it is that the only time they played it in the reunion era. I think so. Uh, I, I believe so. I, I, I can't it, think it, of it one. Was, it, it was totally unexpected, uh, and, and and a lot of fun. So. Yes, yes, it was. And then they closed out the the year and, and with shows in Columbus, Ohio and Indianapolis, Indiana. There was quite the, the fun going from one arena to the other. A lot of a lot of stories about that. <laughs> but we'll but we'll we'll stay away from that. And that was it for two thousand and two, the first year of the rising tour had concluded. Now, as Flynn mentioned, they had of course already announced everything that was going to be happening in two thousand and three by late December. And also they had announced that Bruce was going to do a couple of benefit shows for Double Take Magazine in Somerville, Massachusetts, which would be solo shows 
in February. I didn't attend those. You didn't either, right? I, I did not. I did not. Claudine did, and she asked. There was a Q&A session that um, I think that was like the first time or one of the first times he'd ever done that with with the audience. And your question, uh, by by way of Claudine, w- was asked about how do you – well, you you know the question. Why don't yes. you say it instead of me going about, trying to go by memory? And when you're on stage and you decide to change the song on the fly, how do you decide so quickly and come up with what you want to play instead of what was planned? That that you're talking about that question, right? I, I am indeed. Yeah. 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 And I believe, and you can hear Claudine on the on the bootleg, of course, on the recording. That was not. <laughs> I'm not saying this because it was my question. That was a music oriented question. There, that Q and A went a little awry, from what I understand. Was that the Boxers or Briefs night? I think so, yes. <laughs> oh, God, okay. But it was an interesting solo show. A lot of stuff that, going back to uh, to the Joe tour, would not exactly raise too many eyebrows. But he did do a, he did debut his version of The Wall, I guess, a, a, a Joe Grishecki co-write. And it was quite quite powerful. It ended up, obviously, on, uh, on High Hopes. And then we arrive at, February 23rd, 2003 at Madison Square Garden. That, of course, is the Grammy Awards for that year. And in fact, if you heard our episode with David Wilde and Phil Rosenthal, David talked about this night because he was one of the members of the Grammy team that put that show together. And Bruce and E Street Band performed The Rising. And then Bruce played an incredible version of London Calling, which, again, go back and listen to David describe what went down with that version. He talks about it in detail in that episode. But, of course, the top line story from this night was the fact that (laughs) he didn't win. (laughs) He did not win. Uh, Nora Jones, who was an artist that I like, so we're not going to pick on her, but she should not have won. And (laughs) well, I think uh, uh, Travis Right. Well, the speculation was that Bruce and Eminem split a good chunk of the voting and then allowing Nora Jones to, to sneak in there. But uh, but yeah, I think Bruce was really anticipating a win there. I think uh, he, Bruce Inc. David, was as yeah. well. And David talked was, about that. Yeah, it was it was surprising and a little disappointing. And it's funny. It's uh, like in a lot of a lot of Bruce fan circles. Nora Jones is not exactly welcome. <laughs> Poor woman. <laughs> He was robbed. Let let's be clear, and <laughs> it was his chance to win album of the year, and and it, it didn't happen. And he was upset about it, as David recounted in the uh, in that episode. From there, the next show was in Duluth, Georgia, and well, it Bruce was actually it was, it was the start of the next leg, correct? The February yeah. March leg, the two thousand and three leg in America, and Bruce actually opened the show with. I'd like to thank absolutely fucking nobody, which obviously was a reference to the <laughs> speech that he would have given had he won as expected. But again, he did not. That, that's actually another really cool moment uh, on the recording. Uh, he says it. It said he says it says it pretty funny, and and so it's worth checking out. I remember I, I had to include it on my compilation. Uh, for, for this for this part of the tour, and and they went into a pretty good version of No Surrender as well. This was a very good portion of the tour. I mean, the the, the theme is that the entire tour was great, well, except for the opening, opening night, night or two. Yeah, but they really they were on a level at this point that you could go see any night 
And you really were seeing the E Street Band at their best. And, and that continued in Austin where they went next. By this point, the coming Iraq war was on Bruce's mind and he altered the set list and, and the show opened with war into the rising and lonesome day. And, and you don't need like a decoder book to, to figure <laughs> that one out. He let the music do the talking here. And uh, obviously it didn't make much of a difference because we were 18 days later, we were at war. But this was his way of uh, making his statement. And it was a good show in, in addition to that, because you got Joe Ely coming out on All Just to Get to You. That's actually a song that Bruce lent his uh, his vocals to Joe's uh, studio version from the album. And then Joe came back out for Working on the Highway to, to close the show. And that is another good show to listen to. Uh, from this phase of the tour, I think if we're going to look at what could be potential archives, the one we're going to focus on and it's coming up is going to be the March 7th show in Atlantic City. But they could really pick any of these shows and they'd be outstanding. Absolutely. I mean, Jacksonville, you got the tour debut of Better Days. And you and I are always we're all about 92 material. In addition to Better Days, Bruce did a version of Let's Go, Let's Go, Let's Go, the Hank Ballard song. While that was a good version, a good performance, I thought it was really good. Now, I was, of course, I was at this show in Richmond, Virginia on March 6th where Robin Thompson, the lead vocalist from Steel Mill, came out as well as Bruce Hornsby to do it. And I thought they delivered a just a, a tremendous version of it. It was just so much fun. Yeah. The interesting thing about that is apparently Robin Thompson showed up thinking that they were going to do the Steel Mill song. He's guilty, but Bruce told them the band didn't know it, so it didn't get played. But apparently they tried to sound check it. Is that true? Well, they might have done it without Bruce. Uh, I don't know. And it, But then it's interesting because that's the one Steel Mill song that ended up on that uh, chapter and verse release to coincide with his autobiography uh, 13 years later in 2016. But yeah, that would have been uh, that would have been mind blowing. <laughs> that would have been really freaking awesome. But no, yeah, that would not to be. And next was Atlantic City, March 7, 2003. Now, this is actually my pick of the best show I saw on the Rising Tour. We're going to talk next time about the stadium leg, and there were some great shows there, too. But this, to me, in that small building in Atlantic City on that snowy day, was it's very hard to top. And, and speaking of fan recordings, this oh one God, has yeah. probably the greatest audience recording that anyone has ever captured. Oh, absolutely. That was from, from Crystal Cat released it, but I think there were actually multiple high quality recordings, audience recordings of that one. And then somehow we, uh, we got a, an IM of it a few years later. And I think that probably t- takes away from it. I even, I mixed it with an audience recording and I'm not really convinced that uh, it's any better. I might as well just stuck with the original audience recording. Yeah, this was just a, tremendous show they opened with atlantic city obviously very fitting and (laughs) and a very fiery version of the song and i I just thought the way they ran through the rising lonesome day was a great version of proven all night and then Mm -hmm. again something happened during empty sky where and at this point we were days away from the iraq war the crowd once again reacted to the eye for an eye line with I think what Bruce later referred to cheers that sounded like bloodlust and it, it definitely altered the show. Absolutely. Uh, 
Yeah, he wanted to be clear, and uh, he did not intend for an eye for an eye line to be a a call for blood, blind revenge, and, and bloodlust, as as you said. And but he uh, he sent some borderline psychotics out there who may have misunderstood. But then he said, living in a time where there's real lives on the line and there's enough destructive posing going on as it is, I wanted to make sure that line was clearly understood. Yeah, um, he was super intense. I remember he was right in front of us and he just, he had that look in his eye. He he wanted to be very clear there. I think that that was a night they were probably looking forward to anyway, but once the crowd reacted like that and it didn't throw the show off otherwise, but I think he wanted to be really, really clear in his intent if people were misunderstanding it. The line that I felt that I remember even more distinctly than that was when he was introducing Born in the USA. He said he wrote it as an anti-war song. I hope I don't have to write it again. And then he sent it out as a prayer for peace for the for our, our military and, and, and our Iraqi civilians. So I think that was more... Uh, more memorable for me, and and I thought it kind of uh, captured the moment a little bit, a little bit better maybe than the than the earlier eye for an eye speech. I agree with that for the most part, and uh, this was just a show the entire night. I, I just felt so locked in. We talked about it last week after MetLife Three, and nobody is saying MetLife Three as good as it was was on a level like this because just fairly they don't play to this level anymore. I mean, they are in their mid seventies, but. This show, I felt so locked in. And it, when you got to the point where he did the greetings pair, he did Does His Bus Stop? And then, and at this point, I had never heard this song with the band yet. He did a version of Sane the City. And Roy's work at the end of Sane the City was just so unbelievable. It was like my entire body was just on <laughs> i can't even describe it i i and we happen to have been right there right near where roy was and he how good was he it was that's a great version and roy just just goes to town at the end of it uh, you know i always prefer the versions where, where bruce and steve are trading guitar licks but i gotta say this one uh this one was pretty damn good too and I think we sh- we should back up a little bit and say that the venue Boardwalk Hall is not is not the same size as as a basketball or hockey arena. Yeah, it's not seventeen thousand people. It was like twelve, so it was a lot smaller than usual. And we have to point out that this is basically, or not basically, it was the third show in the the uh, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey area. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to believe that North Carolina got more shows and or got as many shows as New Jersey on that part of the tour. So the, the fans were there, the, the diehard passionate fans were, were in attendance. And so they uh, certainly like you really, really brought their part to, to the concert. Yeah, this was a great night. And we should also mention, this was one of the hardest tickets of the last 25 years. It was <laughs> an impossible ticket. Yeah. Well, I wasn't even in GA with you. <laughs> I was actually, in I Cease remember that. that night, but I loved it. You know, it was a little bit further away than usual, but it was still it was still a hell of a night, especially closing with a 92 song in Roll of the Dice. I, You know, I love that one. Well, there was so much special stuff mm-hmm. going on in this show. Uh, after Captain Miracle, he did a solo version of Jersey Girl on the piano, which was quite beautiful. 
and then they finished the main set with Into the Fire, and and then they did a cover, a unique cover that has never been done before, I don't believe, and has certainly never been done again. The Beatles tell me why, and and that was just that was an unbelievable moment. Yes, it was. He he told a story about coming to Boardwalk Hall when he was when he was a kid with his mom, and so kind of brought it all the way all the way back, and uh, especially with uh, with his passion for the Beatles. He picked a, a good song to, good song to to do it with. That was just what a magnificent night that was, and the entire set of encores after "Tell Me Why" was just off the charts. the The glory days. The crowd was so into the show, <laughs> and that is a building. It was it was loud. It was even though it was the middle of the winter. That that is one of those small buildings that you just. I, I can't remember if we were sweating, but you just feel like, you know, it's like these one, it feels like a tiny little gymnasium, you know, that's what it was. Uh, it wasn't that yeah. big. It, it's no, yeah. it was nowhere near like a, no, like Madison square garden or, or the Meadowlands. It was a small, small venue. Maybe 12,000 was even not even that. The last thing I remember about that show when he closed would roll the dice, shout out to our friend Sue, who had a pair of dice figuring that he might play the song there. And she <laughs> threw them on stage to this day. I don't know if he intended to throw them back to her or if he just luckily threw them in our direction, but they basically came right back to her from Bruce at the end of the song. And oh, then wild. some guy jumped up and grabbed them basically out of her hands. And I leapt up and I said, Nope, that's, <laughs> that's her dice. And I grabbed them and gave them back to her. Oh my God. That's a, uh, that was a rude, uh, that was a very rude individual. Yeah. To, to, well, to I don't do know that. that I, I, look, he may have fairly thought that Bruce was just sh- throwing them back into the audience, which in fact he may very well have been doing. I don't know. But they came right back at us, and I was like, Sue is getting those dice <laughs> back because she had brought them. Oh, very cool. I'm glad. And I'm sure she she still has them to this day. I think she does. Yes. All right. Ready for a head bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. From Atlantic City, they they moved up to Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, again more anti-war sentiment. Opening with the song "War," and uh, what I remember hearing about this show. Now I didn't go, but I heard the, this version of "Spirit in the Night" was was incredibly fun, and that there was a lot of groping going on <laughs> amongst the amongst people in the front row as as, as Bruce kind of uh, laid on the stage there. Yeah, I was back in L.A. by that point. I don't really think I know much about that show. Now, the Rochester show that followed, I listened to a bunch of times because I I thought it was a really cool sequence show. There was Blinded by the Light between Sunny Day and Worlds Apart. And then a a very interesting sequence of songs. Nothing Man in place of Canton on a Miracle, followed by Backstreets, followed by Night. And then the set closing with Into the Fire. That's a pretty unique run of songs there for this tour. And then to top it all off, he also did Fire in the encores, oddly, after Land of Hope and Dreams and before Dancing in the Dark. Yeah, I think that that's another small building. And I think that the fans were 
they were really again in concert with Bruce and and the uh, I think there was some signing request or something somebody yelling it out but yeah I don't think it was really rehearsed but uh, but they did it and it was sounded like it was incredibly fun I remember a bunch of our friends telling me that that was a really great show also and with that they were done in the states for that period of time and they were going off to Australia and and once again they did not take a long break there was only 9 days between Rochester and the first show in Melbourne by then, hostilities had broken out in Iraq, of course, and the shows in Australia would change because of Bruce wanting to comment on the, the current events. And when he arrived in Melbourne, the first show now was opening with Born in the USA Acoustic into war, which, again, you can't mistake that message. Not at all. It was uh, actually March 20th, which was the... Uh the date of the first Australian show in Melbourne, that was the start of the war. Uh, missiles or bombs that started dropping by that point. So he came out and again, made his musical statement with the acoustic USA and into the full band war. And then no surrender can't be, can't be ignored there either. So it was, no. uh, he had a, he had an agenda there and he, and he let it be known. He did. And from there they went to Sydney for this show, we're going to bring in a good friend because we want a little bit more color. There were some unusual events that occurred. And with that, we welcome to the show, Bill Donahoe. Uh, g'day, fellas. How are you going? Good to uh, be chatting. Oh, Bill, yes, it's great to have you. Yes, thanks so much for joining us. So, uh, so Sydney was a very interesting and unusual show uh, because of a series of power outages, right? That's correct. Yes, <laughs> it's... Uh... Yeah, yeah, we had four of them, actually. There were four power outages and, again, probably something I've never seen in any other concert. And I think it, I think it really, really did impact on Bruce in a very, very strong way. He, he mentioned it quite constantly, obviously, throughout the show. He mentioned it at the next Brisbane show. Um, and then even when he came back, eventually came back in, in 13, it, it was part of, part of his press conferences. It, it, it sort of got discussed. So. It was obviously a show he didn't forget for a long time and probably still hasn't. But uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting night. They when the power outages did happen, you could hear the drums obviously kept going, and all the other amplified instruments were were off. But the crowd kept going. I mean, the the first power outage was during the second song, which was War, and and the crowd kept going with the chant. And Stephen and I remember Stephen and Clarence running across the front of the stage. Bruce had gone off to see what was going on. And and Steve and Clarence are running around just getting the chant going and clapping and uh, that whole war, war, what is it good for? Chant just kept going during the power outage. Power came back up, band kicked back in, and they finished the song. Did did um, they start the song over or did they just kind of pick up um, at some point? I think they, they – oh, that one they might have started over, I think, but I think they just picked up with the chant and then kept going. Um, I, think, I think the rising, it was a little bit later in the song, which was, I think, the – the fourth song of the night, the second power outage. Um, it happened towards the end, uh, three or four minutes in, but then the, the lie, lie, lies got it, sort of kept going and they picked up with the with the lie, lie, lies and, and finished the song. So the audience um, the audience kept it going then? The audience kept it going. And I think the, the band members on stage kind of, you know, kept the kept the sort of vibe up. And uh, I know there's, record, there's, there's a recording of that show that circulates, but unfortunately the taper paused the tape during those those um power outages which which was again a, an interesting thing to do maybe he was worried about how long they were going to be out for and how much tape he had but um 
I think it was a DAP recording that he did, that he had. But um, but yeah, we don't get to hear that unfortunately, and and there hasn't been a a second tape of that Sydney show ever surface. Um, did you I, tell I me certainly... earlier? Did you tell me earlier that I was raining that day? It, it had rained earlier in the day, so it was threatening to rain. It hadn't rained that night, and I think it did rain on the way home. Um, but it was windy, so. Again, that recording that that the fellow that I know recorded it was up in the stands. Um, it was a it was a cricket oval, so it was a very big oval. It was a circular oval. Um, the stage was at one end. The, they used one of the opposite end stands as as the elevated seating, and the uh, the, the the ground the oval was was um, reserved seating all the way down to the front, um, but but really spread out. It was a long distance from the stands to. Um, to the stage, uh, the sound wasn't loud enough. There were sound issues with the neighbouring with the neighbours, uh, thanks to the Rolling Stones who would do it a, <laughs> a little bit earlier, and uh, and there, there were limitations on the number of concerts at the Sydney Cricket Ground per annum, and and also the sound levels at the Sydney Cricket Ground, which I believe the current government's trying to overturn. So hopefully we can get Springsteen down here in the near future. But um, it's a it was an interesting time. The sound was a problem. The but I think for the for the power outages, which again we had two more, one during waiting on a sunny day, which was towards the end, and uh, and worlds apart was also the other power outage, which of course each time it happened, Bruce had to keep coming back and and saying, I don't know what's going on here, what's going on. I had dreams about this. My therapist <laughs> told me they were just dreams. Um, you know, I need to get my money back. You know, you know, there I was standing on stage with no power and no lights. You know, so it was kind of it was very much a. It caught everybody by surprise. Well, the the in sunny day, I can see where the audience would have kept things going, but worlds apart would have seemed a little bit more disjointed in, in that kind of situation. Do you remember how that went? It did. I think it it it, it again. It was probably towards um, the end, and and I've got my in my own notes. I've got lost power. Crowd kept clapping. So um, so whether <laughs> there was just a clap or a you know, kept the beat going, I think each time the power went down, Max's drums were quite quite loud. You know, the audience oh, okay. was quiet, and you, you kind of had the beat going. And I think I think that that sort of encouraged the crowd to sort of stay in the moment. And um, whilst whilst some people quoted as you know from a, if they were sitting up the back, the sound was a problem. But you know, if you were down the front where, where we were, first ten rows or something, um, the the sound was pretty good. You know where we were. It was we were close enough to the speakers. We were we were fairly central. Um, we're in front of Stephen, I think, just a little bit to the side of Bruce, and uh, and uh, it was a good night. Once again, that was our friend Bill Donahoe giving us the uh, on the spot reporting about the uh, about the uh, Sydney show, which included those interesting power outages, which I don't think Bruce forgot for for quite a bit. And then uh, there were two nights in Brisbane, and again. Same kind of thing, opening with Morning USA into War, but the first night had the had Jungle Land. That was a tour debut, and it really uh, that's always a special one for me. I love seeing that one in, in stadiums. Yeah, and I think it was just surprising that it took this long into the tour for Jungle Land to appear, but here on March 25th, it finally did. Now, the next night in Brisbane, it was a pretty basic show. Uh, again, Until the encore. Born in the USA, into war, no surrender. Yes, the, in in the encores, they had a couple of unusual selections. This Hard Lamb was played, and also I'm a Rocker was played. Was it? Was there any begging involved with I'm a Rocker this time? <laughs> I don't believe there was. We should have shipped Jason to <laughs> Brisbane. I'm sure he would. He would have loved to have gone too. 
And we know that Gold Coast there is one of Bruce's happy places. Oh, man, those 2017 shows you saw there, thats those were huge highlights from from that run of shows. And then we get to the last show we're going to discuss this evening, and then we're going to break. Bruce and the band played Auckland on March 28, 2003. Now, he did tweak the opening sequence. I believe it rained that day. So he changed Born in the USA. Instead of war, he played Who Will Stop the Rain, which is ironic because, again, he always plays it when it's raining. But, of course, there it had a more significant dual meaning because of the war. Right. And and, and apparently, uh, I heard from Bill earlier that the rain actually did stop. So Bruce's superpowers were once again on the, on display when it when it came to this song and weather. Yeah, and this was the one show they were playing in Auckland. He played a very representative set of the rising tour. My hometown was played in between Mary's place and into the fire. He gave him Bobby Jean, not a surprise, a song of born in the USA and the encores. And then the show ended with two additional born in the USA songs, glory days and dancing in the dark. And with that, they were done in the Southern hemisphere and they'd be heading back to the States for a very brief run through North America. There was one show in Sacramento we'll talk about next time, and then a Canadian leg. And from there, they would go on to the stadiums in Europe, and then finally back to the States. And we're going to talk about all those shows in our third and final Rising Tour episode. Yeah, we uh, we absolutely love this tour. So we could probably talk about this one for another two or three. But in the uh, in the interest of brevity, we're going to we're going to call it for uh- tonight. I think three is enough, but we're going <laughs> to probably spend a lot of time on that stadium leg, especially the Shea shows. Oh, yeah, we, we could do a half an hour on we could do half an hour on ten four alone, but yes, but we're not at least not tonight. All right. <laughs> I, no, that's it for us. Let me wrap things up. None but the brave is a presentation of Evergreen Podcast, produced by Bull Market Entertainment. If you want to learn about our Patreon page, please go to patreon.com slash MBTB podcast. And on Twitter, you can find us at MBTB podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks again to Jason Berkeley and Bill Donahoe. And we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. (laughs) 